All right, so we uh, are continuing in our First Corinthians series, and uh, uh, we are today um, at what we know as the love chapter, right? This is, this is that part of scripture that we misuse all the time. Uh, now, don't be embarrassed, but how many of you had First Corinthians read at your wedding? A few of you. Listen, I'm not mad at that. Right? There is absolutely nothing wrong with having 1 Corinthians 13 right at your wedding. Right? Because the, the, the love that we want you to have as a husband and wife as you enter into covenant commitment together is patient and kind and gentle. And it doesn't envy and it's not arrogant and it doesn't rejoice in evil. But here's the thing. Man, he ain't talking about you. He's not writing this because he wants to encourage you in your marriage right? It's fine for your marriage, but he's writing to the church, and he's writing in the context of spiritual gifts. See, one of the things that happens when we take scripture out of context is we lose the flavor uh, of what God is really trying to communicate. And while it is very important that you love your wife well, and you love your husband well, um, it's really important that we understand what Paul's saying here. And what he's saying here is in the context of the church, we are supposed to love well. And then he's going to go into some, into some specifics about what that love looks like, but he's doing it all under the backdrop, all under the presupposition that we understand that this is in the context of use and misuse of spiritual gifts, right? Pastor David talked last week about spiritual gifts in the church. This is just more of that same conversation. And we'll actually have uh, chapter 14 dealing with something similar. And so in, uh, in, in the next two weeks, we'll be digging more into spiritual gifts. But Paul stops here and he says, listen, don't you understand that while your spiritual gifts matter, they matter a whole lot less than your ability to love one another well in the context of the church. And the, the church is supposed to excel at love. Because here's the thing, the God that we come here to honor and worship is love. The simplest, most direct explanation, description of God's character is love. 1 John 4, 16, God is love and because God is love, and that is the simplest, most complete description of his character, then listen carefully, that ought to be yours as well. If you are here this morning and you claim Jesus, if you have surrendered yourself to Jesus, you've had that moment, whether you came forward to the front, whether you did it in the quietness of your own heart, whether, whether you were doing it one-on-one -on -one with somebody, whatever it is, where you have said, Jesus, I give up, I surrender, I'm giving my life to you, I can't do this on my own, I sin, and I'm wicked, and I'm separated from you, but I want to be right, and I want to be okay with you, and I want to be born again, like you have that moment, that experience then your defining characteristic ought to be the same as God's. You ought to be known for your love. In fact, here, here's what he says in the rest of this verse, right? God is love. And then he continues. And all who live in love live in God. If you want to abide in God, abide in love. It's a simple call. But something tragic happens in the church. Too many churches. 
We are known for a whole lot of things that aren't love. We're known for a whole lot of things that aren't love. And the problem with that is it dishonors God. It paints God in the wrong light. It robs God of who he is. Now, I want to be clear about this. You and I do not have the power to actually dishonor God. He will always have the highest honor, right? My behavior is not going to make God less honorable, but what it does is it causes people to look at him with less honor. Our job is to magnify God. There's two ways to magnify. Any of you remember from science class, you you pulled out the microscope and you magnified with a microscope, right? What the microscope does is it takes something that's really tiny, really, really tiny, and it magnifies it to make it look bigger than it really is. And then you've got a telescope, What a telescope does is it takes something really glorious but far away and it magnifies it so that we can see it more like it really is. It's the difference in magnification. One magnifies something insignificant so we can take a closer look at it. One magnifies something glorious and brilliant but it it, it makes it so we can see it more like it really is. Church, You're magnifying God in some way by the way that you love. When you love poorly, right, you're magnifying something insignificant. You're magnifying some kind of issue, some kind of temporary thing, some kind of arrogance, some kind of preference, some kind of uh, of slight, some kind of attitude, something. When you love poorly, you're magnifying something insignificant. And that paints God in in not a great picture. But when you love well, right, you're magnifying God who is glorious. And we're making him glorious to the people that see him. The way you love matters. And and, in fact, here's here's what Christ tells us. He says, so now I'm giving you a new command. Love each other. Right? This is what he's saying. I mean, it's great in your marriage. Yes, love each other in your marriage. But he's talking to his, his disciples here. Uh, and, and, and this is something we translate for believers to one another. Love one another. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I have loved you. How did he love us? To completion. He dies for us. He puts us first. He loves us in a way that is otherworldly. He says, love one another as I have loved you. You should love each other. And then he says this, your love for one another will actually prove to the world that you're my disciples. Right? Some of you that, that grew up in some of those churches that were singing those songs, right now in your head, you're, you're humming, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And you can't stop there because he repeats it. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. You got to say it twice. Otherwise it doesn't count. But that's how it works, right? This is what Jesus says. He says love is so critically important. John says in 1 John, God is love. You want to abide in God, then you better abide in love. Right? Because that's the character of God. And how will they know that you're a Christian? How will they know that the church actually magnifies God so that we can see him more clearly for who he is and all of his magnificence? How? 
Well, they'll know that by the way that we love one another. This is, this is how Paul's entering into this conversation with the church in Corinth. Because they were not loving each other. Instead, they were bickering. They were power struggling. They were fighting over spiritual gifts. They were jealous that somebody had a gift that was more public and seemed cooler than theirs. Right? They were bragging that they had a gift that was more public and that seemed cooler. And they were bickering with one another. And so David talked to us last week. Pastor David did a great job. If you missed it, go back and listen online. He talked about the fact that Paul's saying, look, that's not what it's about. The gifts are given by God and they're given for the benefit of the church. It was never about you in the first place. And then he says, but, but here's the deal, right? I'm going to show you still a more excellent way to go about this. And going about it isn't focusing on gifts. This is how he ended last week. I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. Yes, have your gifts. Yes, figure out how to use and exercise your gifts in a way that edifies and builds up the church. Yes, all of that matters. And yes, we will deal with that more when we get to chapter 14. We'll talk about the, the exercising and the proper use of some of these gifts and what they really are and how to do them, right? Some of you are waiting so much for that. I, it's coming. But there's a reason it comes next comes next because Paul says it's secondary. It's actually secondary. I hear people say all the time, oh, the church isn't powerful because we don't understand our spiritual gifts. And I say, nonsense. And if you want to fight with me after church about that, let's, I mean, in love. <laughs> right? But I would say that's a secondary issue. And yes, we could use the gifts better. And yes, that matters. But you know what? Paul puts it second for a reason. The church loses its power when we don't love well. And some of us are so focused on gifts at the expense of how we love one another. And that's Paul's point here. He says, yeah, gifts matter, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. The problem is that it's easier to focus on other things, right? It's easier to focus on orthodox, orthodoxy, right? theology. It's easier to do that than to be loving. It's easier to be active in the church and to be serving and to doing some of those things than it is to really love. It's easier to be religious than it is to love well. But the supreme characteristics of God, right, the thing that Paul says is God's character and how you abide in him and how he abides in you. The thing that will tell a watching world that you belong to God is love. It's the command. All right? Now, and, and I want to be clear, the love that Paul talks about, you probably know this, but, but the love he's talking about, the word he's using in Greek is agape. It's the only place that word exists is in the context of this kind of love, right? There's, there's eros. That's the romantic sexual love, the, uh, um, the, the draw between uh, a husband and a wife, right? This, this romance. That's a good love to experience in a marriage. Like, there ain't nothing wrong with it. It's good, and you want it, right? You want to have those um, butterfly kinds of feelings. If you don't, it can make a marriage difficult, then, then, then you've got that, 
phileo, that, that sentiment, the brotherly affection, the friendship, right? Like that connection, the camaraderie. You want that in a marriage too. Gets awfully difficult to be married when you don't have this kind of commitment and connection with one another. But agape, agape is that other-centered, self-giving, completely focused on someone else's love. And it does not exist, not truly, outside of the Christian. Because the only one that loves like that, the only one that loves like that is God. And only Christians are made new with the power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them, right? There are plenty of people that aren't Christians that can love others well, that can even be giving of themselves. But the only way to really do this, the only way to really love someone in this kind of a way is when you've been made new by Jesus Christ. In fact, this was totally foreign to the Greeks. Um, well, we'll get there. All right, let's dig in. All right, 1 Corinthians 13. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip open there. We're going to do 13 verses, and you're like, 13 verses, that'll be quick. And it will, because we're going to make it quick. But we're going to linger in a couple of spots here, so stay with me. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in tongues, remember the context here is doing it wrong with spiritual gifts. And Paul says, wait a minute, gifts are important, but they come next. So let's first address this more important way, something still better, and that's loving well. And he says, so, so here's the deal. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, then I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right? So you might exercise what was the, the most problematic and sought after gift in the church in Corinth, which was the speaking of tongues. Now, we'll talk next week more about what that is and how they used that gift as we get to chapter 14. But, but just for, for now, we, we can say speaking in tongues might go one of two directions. Right? And, and Paul says them both. The tongues of men... Right? So one of the ways that people might speak in tongues is they might speak a language they have no business knowing. Right? So that might happen, like, for example, if I were, if I were moved by the power of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with somebody that did not speak my language, right? It is very possible that the Holy Spirit in me might cause me to speak a language I have no business knowing. Right? So if I speak in the tongues of men... Right? Or of angels. Now, I don't know what angels sound like. I don't know what language they use, but I think this is Paul's way of describing this otherworldly language. Right? That's not a known language to us that we just don't know, but somebody else knows it. Right? Like if I were up here and all of a sudden I started speaking German to you, right? I don't know German, but it's a known language. But when he says of men, and of angels, right? That's not a language that somebody else knows in another part of the world. Nobody else is naturally going to say, oh, well, that's my normal dialect. That's what I typically say. Right? So Paul's saying, if I speak in tongues, whether it's this supernatural way that I'm communicating to somebody that I shouldn't be able to talk to, or if it's this otherworldly language, 
If I do that, but I can't love people well, then it's just noise. It's just incoherent babbling. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's, it's not helpful. It's not beautiful. It's not edifying. It's just noise. And if I have prophetic powers, right, prophetic powers, if I can hear from God a message and then give it to other people so that they can understand what God says and wants, if I have prophetic powers... And I can understand all of the mysteries, right? Like, I can understand the nature of God, the nature of creation, and the nature of God's plan. And I can understand it all with no questions. And I have all the knowledge. Nothing is confusing to me. And I have faith to move mountains. That's faith rooted in the God of the universe through the power of the Holy Spirit. I have the kind of faith that can say to that mountain, get up and throw yourself in the sea. I have that. But I can't love people? And Paul says, you're nothing. See, this is the problem. There were too many people in the church in Corinth, and I would venture to say, too many people in the church in America. I can't speak for other countries. I don't live there. But too many people in the church in Corinth, too many people in the church in America that are more interested in what these things look like than they are in the character of them. Right? In a celebrity pastor culture, in a celebrity culture, right, or a look at me culture, we have a lot of people wanting to be looked at. And so there's all of this, listen to me, look at what I can do, see my great faith, and everybody can laud it, and everybody can appreciate it, and everybody can, can say it's awesome and, and how wonderful. But at the end of the day, Paul says, I- I'm really nothing. Nothing that matters if I can't love well. And if I give away everything I have, and then I deliver my body to be burned... This is the ultimate in following Jesus, right? This isn't just lip service. Paul is saying, literally, you could say, Christ, everything I have is yours. And not just say it, but back it up by giving it all away. And Christ, my own life, the very breath in my lungs is yours. And I back it up by delivering myself to be martyred for my faith. He says, you could go to that extreme, but... If you're not going to love anybody, then what do you think it gets you? He says, I gain nothing. Some of you are like, how could it be possible to do those things and not love well? Look at Jonah. We have a perfect example in, in the history of Scripture. Jonah spoke prophetically. He was a prophet of God. He understood. He had wisdom from God. He had the knowledge of what God was going to do, right? He had the faith that God could carry out anything. And yet he was as unloving as it got. And God showed him that he was nothing. And Jonah exists for us not to laud his character, but as a warning as we read Scripture. Paul's whole point here is that love matters. Gifts are nice. 
Gifts are important. Gifts are given by God. Gifts are designed to build up and edify the church, but none of them matter if you can't love well. There is a first and foremost thing. This is the problem in our church today. I am convinced more than any other problem. And man, listen, of course, we're human. We got problems. But our biggest issue is that we don't love as well as Jesus has commanded us to love. And so you're like, well, what does that love look like, Matt? What does agape love look like? Well, Paul knew you were going to ask. And so he maps this out for you. And we're going to go through these. And and so now you can track with. First thing he says, love is patient and kind. You know what patience is, right? Good. Okay, we don't have to go into that. Like, I am so good at being patient, I don't even have the time or patience to explain it to you. That was a terrible joke. I appreciate your chuckling. Because later we're going to find out that I am a little bit more arrogant than I care to be. And so when you laugh at my jokes, it makes me feel good. Listen, I got some work to do. It says love is patient and kind. Patience here does not have to do with circumstances. Patience has to do with people. Real love. The love that Jesus demonstrated and then asks you to go and do likewise. The love that will let a watching world know that you belong to God. That love is patient towards others. And if it's patient, it means that it's not always easy. See, we understand this when it comes to Christian marriage, right? We say this all the time when it comes to marriage. Listen, when it comes to marriage, you are going to have moments where it is not going to be easy to love your spouse. I I won't ask you to confirm that. Because some of you are sitting, you're even so sweet, you've got your arms around your spouse, and it really looks nice, and I don't want them to be in a perfect position to hit you. But we know in marriage, right, love can be difficult. It's not always easy, that's why patience is required, but somehow we've forgotten that in the church. We've got all of these different personalities from all of these different kinds of people, from all of these different walks of life, and all of these different things, and we come together now with one foundation under the banner of Jesus Christ crucified and our redemption and walking with him, and yet we forget that there's going to be tensions. And, but Paul says love is going to be patient. And the other side of that is kindness. Right? It's not just going to be patient, but it's going to go out of its way to be kind. If patience is, is maybe taking things from other people, right? If that's what we would say patience is, I can take a little bit extra from people because I'm being patient and long-suffering. Kindness is giving in a good way to people. Love doesn't envy or, or, or boast. It's not jealous and it, it doesn't brag. Right? Real love in the church isn't jealous. It goes back to spiritual gifts. It's not jealous of what you have or what somebody else has. And, and here, jealousy, envy, it, it shows up in two ways. Both are bad, but one's worse. The first way is just your regular jealousy that says, I want what you have. It's covetousness right? It's a sin. 
It's not right. For me to look at what you have and say, I want what you have, um, and I desire what you have, and I can't be satisfied until I have what you have, and it causes me distress that I don't have what you have. That's jealousy. There's another side to jealousy, though, and it's where I start to say, not only do I want what you have, I hate that you have it. It's not just me wanting it. It's me hating that it's yours. And I wish you didn't have it, and I want it stripped from you. And then I'm going to rejoice if you stumble or if you fall or if something happens. But love and jealousy can't coexist. And, and bragging, boasting is the other side of that, right? Jealousy is I want what you have. Bragging is I want you to want what I have. The only reason we brag is because we want you to be jealous of what we have. And love doesn't act like that. And it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't puff itself up. I cannot be loving if I am making myself out to be the most important person in every room I ever walk into. It's arrogant. That's not other-centered. Look at Jesus, right? Jesus, Philippians tells us, Jesus, who was equal to God, who was God, chose not to dwell on his equality with God, but instead took on flesh, becoming like us. That's agape love. It's not arrogant, it's not prideful, but it's other-focused. It's not rude. Some of you are like rude, how does that fit in there? All these other ones are serious ones. Rude, that's just a thing when I haven't had enough coffee or when I woke up on the wrong side of the bed or whatever. No. Listen, rude is not loving somebody enough to try. It's not loving somebody enough to care. And you know what? We, oh, this one. Th- this, one I, <laughs> this one bothers me as a pastor because, because it's become almost <sighs> sought after to a degree in the church We call it authenticity, right? It's really just rude, but we say, oh, I'm just being real. I'm just keeping it real. I'm not faking it anymore. I'm just going to be myself. Well, who you are apparently is unloving if you're rude all the time. Like, I'm just being blunt. But you don't have to be. Now, there's a difference between blunt and frank. Blunt is, I am going to be truthful without regard for how you feel. Frankness says, I will be truthful, but I will still have some regard for how you feel. Right? Like, Carrie and I were in small group once, um, and Carrie spent all day, this is back in the Quad City, she spent all day making these uh, Mrs. Fields, like, and what they were called, like, million-dollar chocolate cookies, and they smelled delicious, and she worked hard because that was back in, um, and when we had small, same group for years and years and years, and, and we took turns bringing food, and we, we loved each other, and we wanted to, and so Carrie brought these cookies that she was so excited to share, and then one of our dearest friends in the world, still to this day, although it took a hit then, um, <laughs> took a bite of that cookie, and she was very blunt about how she felt about it. She was telling the truth. She was just keeping it real. She spit it out in her hand and said, that is disgusting. <laughs> that, was, that was truthful without regard for how somebody would feel, right? 
We've worked past it. It's fine. I thought the cookies were delicious. Nailing it. Love does not insist on its own way. And, and, and it's not irritable or resentful. We can see how those all go in order. Right? Love doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't have to win. When I really love, I don't have to win. It doesn't have to be the way I want it to be. And because I don't have to, to win, then I'm not irritable when I don't get my way. Right? Like so many of us, here, here's what happens in the church. We say, okay, fine. That's not, it's not my way. We act like it's no big deal. Right? But then what happens? We get irritable. We get irritable. And we get resentful sometimes because, well, I didn't get my way. And so, yeah, it, it happened and it is what it is. But then internally, I struggle with irritability and resent. And it's almost like we're keeping a ledger. That, that word for resentful actually has to do with bookkeeping. It's keeping a list. It's necessary when you run a business. It's tragic in the church. Just like it is in a marriage. It doesn't work. Love isn't insisting on its own way and it's not irritable when it doesn't get its own way and it doesn't keep track of how many it's won and how many it's lost. And it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But always rejoices in the truth. Love will never honor sin. Now, this is a tough one for a church. Because our culture has taught us that to love means to tolerate. And it's really hard from a cultural perspective to love while not tolerating. Right? But we don't need to let anybody else rewrite a rule book for us. God has told us in this chunk of scripture and other places what real love is and what real love looks like. And real love isn't arrogant and it's not irritable and it doesn't have to have its own way and it's not rude and it's not self-serving. But you know what? It also doesn't delight in wrong. And it won't call wrong wrong. Now it might call it out a little bit gentler than some of us like to do. But it doesn't delight in wrong. It only rejoices with the truth. And the truth that he's referring to here is the truth of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified, the gospel that saves. And then he ends with this. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And it endures all things. Listen to me. And this is one of the reasons why we take covenant membership so seriously. And it's why Paul is writing about this so hard here towards the church in, in Corinth. And why every church that exists ought to have this same attitude when people decide we want to be part of it. Because biblical love, agape love in a fellowship, in a community, stands up. It endures. Right? It passes the test of time. It bears all things. Was I hurt? And love stands up under that. Was I disappointed? And love stands up under that. Right? Did... Am I sure whether or not, do I really believe that, that that person had the best intentions or the best attitude or the best interests in mind? You know what? Love believes all things. 
It hopes all things. Right? It hopes. Any of you that, that have adult children that have wandered away, you get that kind of love. That love that hopes for all things. You hope for a return. Right? You know what that's like. You know what that's like. You, you wrestle with it. You pray about it. You strive. You, you, you argue with God about, about bringing them back into faith. Right? You're, you're begging him to do that. It hopes all things. And it endures all things. That word for endure is a military term. It means you hold the position. That's what that word means. It means love holds the position regardless of the cost. That is biblical love. That is agape love. That's what it means to love in the church. And so Paul has stopped. He says, yeah, 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 spiritual gift, spiritual gift, spiritual gift. Of course they matter because the Holy Spirit gives them to you. The Holy Spirit wouldn't give them to you if you didn't matter. But stop squabbling because you got to learn how to love each other first. That's what the world is looking at. The world isn't looking at whether or not you can speak in tongues. The world don't care. But I have a prophetic voice and a message I want to share. They don't care. How will they know you're Christians? By the way that you love each other. Now, please don't misunderstand. The gifts matter. They just matter second. They matter second to love. And Paul is not pulling any punches there. Here's how he ends this chunk of it. He says, love never ends. Right? Prophecies, they're going to pass away. Tongues, man, they're going to cease. Right? But, but as for knowledge, it's going to go by the wayside. Right? All of, all of those gifts are very temporary. All of those gifts will end. Now, some of you are going to say, Matt, when do they end? Here, I'll tell you. Okay, because that's, that's one of the main questions we have in the church today is, are these gifts still for today? These what we call sign gifts or prophetic gifts. We call them sign gifts because they are signs of the power of God. Right? Uh, the sign gifts, they're the ones that would say, when I'm preaching the gospel, these signs and wonders would happen, and it would validate the message that I'm speaking to you. Yes, God is real. Yes, God saves. I will preach the gospel, and then signs and wonders of healing and tongues and prophecy, and all of it comes along with it. Sign gifts. We want to know, are they still for today? Paul says they're going to pass away, Right? Love will always be. He says love is more important than gifts because love will always be. Those gifts will disappear, right? They'll pass away. Tongues, they'll stop. Knowledge, it'll go away. Prophecy, they'll end. So we ask when. Well, he answers the question next, right? We know in part, so we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, when the perfect comes, the partial, the part, will pass away. Right? So we know that's true, right? So he says, look, they're, they're, they're incomplete. The spiritual gifts are incomplete. They're a picture, right? And once the perfect happens, we won't need the picture any longer. I am not going to stare at a picture of Carrie when Carrie is standing right next to me. You're like, oh, I miss Carrie so much. Let me look at her picture. She walks through the door and I'm like, hey... I'm just busy missing you. Hey, it doesn't make any sense. The gifts will pass away. The question is when. When will they pass away? At some point, they're going to be useless. Let's talk about them like this. They're like the Old Testament sacrifices. Very necessary. 
very useful until Jesus, until the perfect sacrifice. Now I don't need the Old Testament sacrifices anymore. They were partial. Now I have the perfect in Jesus. So what about the spiritual gifts? Well, he says they'll be replaced by the perfect. Some people will tell you that that has happened already. They are called cessationists. Uh, We're not mad at them. We just don't necessarily agree with them. Cessationists would say that all of the prophetic sign gifts have ceased. They have ended. Because what they would say is the perfect refers to the entirety of Scripture available to you. We didn't used to have all of Scripture available to us. God was still revealing it as we walked along in in early church history. He was still inspiring um, Scripture. We didn't have it already, but now we have it complete for us, so we don't need these gifts anymore. They would tell you that is the perfect. I would disagree. Um, I'm looking around the world that we live in. I'm not seeing perfect yet. Right? I see perfect as Jesus. Right? That's what it meant when the Old Testament sacrifices stopped. It meant that now we have Jesus. And I think there's a point in time in the future where we will have Jesus again. No, I, I know there's a point in time where we will have Jesus again. And having Jesus again, right, is when the perfect will have arrived, when we are in this heavenly state, Right? So that's called continuationism. So we firmly believe the gifts of the Spirit, right? Not just um, what we would call the, the administrative gifts, but also the sign gifts that they continue. Paul says the partial will pass away, but, but that's not yet because the perfect hasn't arrived. And so he says this, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's a lot of words there. Here's what, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, right, that you have to be willing to give up these things. He's not calling spiritual gifts childish. Please don't think he's calling spiritual gifts childish, Right? But he's saying, right, that there is a time like us as we mature, right, as we grow, and there is a time to put away certain things to embrace other ones. That is the way it is or will be with spiritual gifts. That's why they're secondary to love, right? There will be a time to put them away. You will not need prophecy in heaven. You know why? Because you won't need to be telling anybody what God thinks. God will tell them what he thinks. You will not need the gift of evangelism in heaven. Because ain't nobody there need to hear the gospel from you. You will not need the gift of tongues in heaven. Because you will be fully known by God and he will be fully known by you. Like we we get this picture like Paul says these things are going to pass away. Because now... Even with the word of God and even with the Holy Spirit living in us, now we see like it's a dimly lit room. It's like we're looking in a mirror. But there is a point coming where we will see face to face. And so he finishes with this last verse in the chunk. He says, and so now we have faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Far and above. Faith, hope, and love linger. But the greatest of those that linger 
is love, right? There will be a point in time when the perfect comes that faith will become sight. And hope will be realized in the resurrection from the dead and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And love will linger for eternity. So this is Paul's point. And I promise you next week we'll, we'll start to talk about how do we use the gifts of the Spirit and what does that look like and why does Blessed Hope do it the way we do? And over the next couple of weeks we'll start to unpack those things. Right? But Paul says they're secondary to love. You've got to love well because it's the command of Jesus Christ. Right? It's the characteristic of God that he says, when you do that well, people will know that you belong to me and it will draw them in. So as we end today, here's my, here's my encouragement and my question for you. Are you known by your love? If you're not, then as a believer in Jesus Christ, I might suggest that you take a good hard look at what surrender looks like. We sang a song about surrender. If you're not known by your love, I would say you take a good hard look at what it means to surrender and what it means to love people well. Spend some time chewing through 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7 especially. Ask God to show you what patience looks like. Ask him to cut impatience out of your life. Boy, that's a hard one. Ask him to cut rudeness and arrogance out of your life. Ask him to cut jealousy. Ask him to help you. Because if we're not known by our love, then we are not magnifying God well. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, you're good and gracious and kind. And we just ask you. We ask you to help us. You have... You have elevated love as this all-important characteristic. Not, not worldly love, but godly love. Agape love. Love that is all about other people. It's the love that you demonstrated for us when you sent your one and only son. To lay his life down and die in our place. God, that is other-centered love. And you've asked us to, to, to demonstrate that. You've asked us to live that. God, I pray that you'll help us be known by our love. And where we fall short, God, we ask that you have the Holy Spirit sharpen us and help us and grow us. And Father, we pray that you will help us see a, a, a tidal wave of people come to know you as we come to love better. That's the connection you've made in your word, that the more we are unified and the more we are, are loving one another in the body, that the more you are made known and made clear to those outside of the church. God, help us to follow that recipe. Father, we love you. We praise you. And we just thank you for all things. Amen.